Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The failure to stop the small boats just reflects people's feeling that these people literally can't get a grip on anything. The Prime Minister is talking tough now on small boats. The idea that the Great Barrington Declaration was this irresponsible plan aimed at killing people was exactly the opposite of the truth. I'd like to wish all Planet Normal listeners a happy winter closure period. We wish you a merry winter closure period. We wish you a merry winter closure period. We doesn't quite have the ring, does it? Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That's the title of the Dr. Seuss children's book classics, The Grinch being a pot-bellied, snub-nosed creature with a cynical personality. <laughs> Rather than The Grinch, we've got near namesake Mick Lynch, the 85 grand a year baron boss of the RMT, the train worker union determined to mainstream strikes ahead of Christmas and the first week of next year too. The damage to the hospitality industry, the broader economy and the Christmas season travel plans of millions is difficult to quantify, as is the extent of the public's support for the RMT. But it does appear the pressure's showing on Mick. He's becoming increasingly belligerent in broadcast interviews. This industrial action by rail workers, postal workers and others providing vital services will get a lot worse before it gets better. But will these strikes finally sink the Tories or ultimately backfire on Labour? I'd say that's in the balance. Meanwhile, Alison, one day after Rishi Sunak talked tough on small boats, we've seen tragedy in the channel, with four people perishing in the freezing waters. Will the Prime Minister's new laws work and stop the people trafficking? Or will the UK ultimately pull the ripcord on the European Convention on Human Rights? And with nurse strikes starting today, Thursday, will the public lose patience with the NHS too? A new Institute for Fiscal Studies report shows that despite the NHS having more funding and more staff than before the pandemic, it's now treating fewer patients. It may be acceptable now to debate the future of our health service, Alison, but perhaps you didn't notice because you've been so busy watching the football. (laughs) Yes, I have. But we got knocked out. I know. I think England needs to raise the bar on its penalty taking. (laughs) I'm used to those kind of penalties from watching rugby, but it's normally not advisable with a smaller goal mouth, is it? As you know, I've become an expert, but I do think now we can watch the England football team without actual dread. I think they played really well, I have to say. And yes, of course, it's disappointing. I think a lot of people around the world, actually, think that the England team were good enough to potentially go all the way. It's a very young side. I think Gareth Southgate has brought together a good group of players and I just hope that he stays on. I genuinely believe that. There's talk that he may leave. 
maybe that's part of a negotiation that he's having with the FA. But I do think he conducted himself well. And I'm glad that in the end, this tournament's been about the football and there have been some amazing matches. Morocco, crikey, beating Spain. That's unbelievable. And we've got beyond all the kind of rainbow armband stuff that dominated the discourse when the World Cup first kicked off. Yeah, I think that people were just glad to have something to distract them from the general malaise. What do you think, Halligan? Oh, actually, before we go into strike action or strike in action, I thought we'd just mention that highlight of the week, Brighton University has suggested that its staff henceforth refer to Christmas as the winter closure period to avoid offending students who are not Christian. So I'd like to wish all Planet Normal listeners a happy winter closure period. We wish you a merry winter closure period. We wish you a merry winter closure period. We don't quite have the ring, does it? Doesn't quite stand, does Ding it? Ding dong merrily on winter closure period. <laughs> anyway, back to the glue. Just by way of distraction, I have to mention, because it's one of the best pieces of journalism I've seen for a long time. The front page of the Daily Star today. We do, Daily the Star Daily Star is our secret pleasure, isn't it? Here we are bestriding the broadsheet <laughs> boulevards of Britain <laughs> with our wonderful soaring prose and well-sourced opinions <laughs> some of the time. And yet we love the Daily Star. The Daily Star's front page today is Border Collie Crashes Car. <laughs> and they've literally got a picture, a genuine picture, genuine, of a Border Collie in a car. And I've got to read out, a startled border colleague crashed his human's Jeep after jumping into the driver's seat and knocking the handbrake off. Let's hope he's, and I love this, fully comp and not third, F-U-R-R-E-D, party, fire and theft. Full story, page 11. And then they've got a picture of said collie with his little eyes blacked out to protect him because he's a minor. I love it. Perhaps the border collie could take over the border forces. Uh... Maybe we can put him in the England midfield for the Euros. <laughs> Why are we laughing? So let's just remind ourselves, shall we, before we crack into how the Grinch stole Christmas. So it's exactly three years ago this week that the Conservatives, remember them, won an 80-seat majority and we can all cast our minds back to the elation of that day. There was even a talk of a Boris decade. The Roaring Twenties. And look how they've squandered <laughs> that goodwill in record time. Here we are in December 2022. Everywhere you look is absolute rampant chaos. And Liam, this week there was, I don't know if you probably saw this, a jaw-dropping poll from Savanta, which put Labour on 48%, with Tories a full 20 points behind on 28%. Now, obviously, that's just a snapshot. It's a particularly bad time for the country. The lovely snow has turned to black ice. And that's pretty much what's happening in Tory seats as well, black ice. Under these predictions, Rishi Sunak would lose his seat. Now, I've been saying for a while, Halligan, haven't I, that based on my own focus group of Telegraph readers, I think the Conservatives will be lucky to hang on to 100 seats. So you can call me on that. You can pull me up on that in 2024. But such are the depths of the disenchantment. And this really isn't just worrying anymore about losing the red wall. This is, can we hang on to the blue golf clubs? And as you said, into this very, very bad situation, lots of conservative disenchantment comes Rishi Sunak tackling the very sore subject of migration, trying to give conservative voters some reassurance this week by announcing a crackdown 
on illegal migration. Migrants who get to the UK by cheating, he says, will be barred from claiming asylum. The Prime Minister is promising legislation early in the new year that will make it unambiguously clear that anyone who enters the UK illegally will have no right to remain here. Do we believe him, co-pilot? Haven't we heard mutterings like this before? This is interesting. The Prime Minister is talking tough now on small boats. And I think when that tragedy happened, it dominated PMQs on Wednesday. Rishi Sunak was there making the argument. I don't think he was making political capital out of those tragic deaths. I just think that was the way events unfurled, if I'm being honest. But he was there saying this is precisely why we are clamping down on this trade in people with people paying huge amounts of money to cross the channel in terribly unsafe vessels. And it was followed by a statement from Suella Braverman, of course. And Peter Lilly, it turns out, was right. Last week, Mm. he told us that you don't actually need to leave the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights. And I must say, if the UK was to leave that convention, a document enshrining human rights drawn up largely by British lawyers in the aftermath of the Second World War precisely to prevent an atrocity like the Holocaust ever happening again. The optics of leaving the ECHR are absolutely awful, even if you're trying to argue that it's well-intentioned. And I don't think Rishi Sunak wants to go there for one minute. He is saying, and in fact, there was a planted question from a backbencher where he said, we should leave the ECHR. And Rishi Sunak basically said... I think we can do this with the new legislation that's coming in like lots of other countries do. That's exactly what Peter Lilly told us on Planet Normal last week would happen, that the High Command would not risk leaving the ECHR, but would try and do this with primary legislation. And I think that will make it politically easier for the country, parts of the Labour Party and the Tory left, the kind of One Nation Tories, to get behind new legislation that comes in in the new year. And it's clear that unless the Tories grab this problem, it will absolutely sink them. I think small boats is a much, much unequivocally dangerous situation for the Conservatives politically, as well as, of course, involving tragic loss of life than the strikes. I genuinely believe, Alison, that the strikes could go either way. I wrote in the Telegraph on Sunday that it may be that with people in losing their lives and waiting lists expanding already 7 million plus because of healthcare worker strikes with people's Christmases being ruined for the third year in the row, two years of COVID Christmas, now train strikes. I think public patience with the unions could evaporate very, very quickly. I think a lot of the media is overly generous to the unions in terms of their coverage reflecting what ordinary people think. I think ordinary people are already really narked, particularly outside the M25, if not within the kind of North London media classes. So while the strikes could go either way, if Sunak brings in some kind of legislation in the new year to make it harder to strike and Labour don't then support that, a lot of the strike action could bounce back on Labour given you know their huge financial links with the trade unions. But I think small boats is really, really dangerous for the Tories. And I think leaving the ECHR would be incendiary to a lot of the population and a lot of Parliament, actually. I'm not sure it would actually get through Parliament. So they're trying to find a middle way here. 
I don't think the population would care about the ECHR. I think that the failure to stop the small boats just reflects people's feeling that these people literally can't get a grip on anything. Now, I'm pretty sceptical about what Rishi Sunak said. I agree with you that if they don't grip it, there will be an extinction level event in 2024 for the Conservatives. But Liam, look, you know, we've got Sweden bound by the ECHR just as the UK is, all right? But Sweden has tackled the influx of illegal migrants, particularly from Albania, immediately sending back each and every one of them to what is deemed by Sweden to be a safe country, okay? It's a pretty safe, pretty good solution. No modern slavery, trafficking, any of those arguments. They're not listening. They're just sending them back. So I guess I'm asking why do the Conservatives need to come up with overcomplicated solutions? The UK, as we know, has been hugely generous in its interpretation of the Refugee Convention. And the Home Office will constantly say that this is because of the British courts, all right? But Sweden has got away with a more stringent interpretation. So it sounds to me like it's pretty lame. And I also think, to be honest, the Home Office has its own agenda and successive Home Secretaries have not been able to budge them. And I genuinely think it's going to be very interesting. I think there's a sort of institutional inertia about this. I'm not sure. I know that Sunak clearly knows he has to make the right noises about it. But coming on to the strikes, there was a really cracking piece in The Telegraph this week by Philip Johnston, former Planet Normal guest, absolute doyen of Telegraph columnists. And Liam, you'll love this. Phil was writing about being a young trade unionist activist during the actual original winter of discontent. And he said, we're seeing it repeated today like a nightmarish deja vu. And what Philip did was he looked at the Telegraph front page for January 23rd, 1979. And the main headline, you're going to love this, was Army Takes Over Ambulances. And then it said, after a 24-hour strike by one and a half billion public employees, which crippled services, including ambulances, schools, hospitals and some airports, leaders of the unions involved decided on an indefinite programme of industrial action. And other stories in The Telegraph that day included the beginning of the third in a series of stoppages by rail workers and the absence of enough emergency ambulance cover for for much of the country. And and you'll recall, Liam, because you've got such a good brain for these things, that James Callaghan, then the Prime Minister... Sunny Jim. Sunny Jim, very strong. He'd just got back from some summit in the Caribbean, was tanned to this (laughs) pale and angry England and said, oh, I don't think anyone else in the world thinks we're in the middle of any sort of difficulties. And The Sun, of course, famously ran its headline. Crisis. What crisis? What crisis? <laughs> I agree. I think that there will be a lot of growing anger with the trade unions. We've got various members of the family supposed to be travelling by train this Christmas. We always go up to London for a show and a dinner with the kids and we won't be doing that now. And as you said in your introduction, Liam, I mean, this is hospitality, you know, all those theatres and cafes and restaurants and bars that are absolutely crying out for Christmas trade. And lots of people are going to be like us and say, well, we're not even going to attempt it because we won't be able to get a train back. And I think one of the most serious ones is today, almost 100,000 nurses are set to walk out. That's the first ever strike 
by nurses. And there are some very serious worries about safety, although the nursing unions are claiming they're going to be adopting a life-preserving care model, but that hasn't stopped some of the senior nurses. Dame Ruth May, Chief Nursing Officer of England, warning that chemotherapy appointments will be cancelled. We know, Liam, don't we, from Planet Normal and from listeners, how lethal is the backlog in cancer treatments. And the last damn thing cancer patients need now is to have their chemo cancelled at the end of a disastrous period of lockdown in the NHS. So any sympathy I feel for nurses, paramedics, midwives, because of the terrible staffing shortages, which does make their work very stressful. But I think the timing is deeply cynical. The timing is cruel. This is the worst time of the year for the NHS. Lots of elderly people are going to be venturing out this week, falling over on the black ice, and there won't be an ambulance for them. They're told, don't even bother calling an ambulance. So, yeah, I feel pretty angry. Just going back to crisis, what crisis? That must be up there in the pantheons of famous things that people never actually said. Just as Lloyd George never actually used the phrase homes fit for heroes, that was a headline writer's interpretation of his speech. Is that right? Indeed. Jim Callaghan ah. never actually said crisis what crisis. Crisis what crisis was actually an album that came out a few years before by the band Supertramp. Ah, <laughs> yes. When I was young, I knew that life was so logical. Breakfast in America and all the rest of it. The Sun put crisis what crisis on their front page because it was a fair reflection of what suntan premier Jim Callaghan actually said as he breezed back into Britain. And I know that front page well. I've got a PDF of it on my computer. I'm looking at it now. And opposite that front page, and the Sun then was 7P. There's inflation for you. Uh, <laughs> the Sun's editorial on its front page, which is rare to put it on the front page, it booms because always tabloid newspapers boom, don't they? The sun is much slimmer than usual again today. This is due to an acute shortage of newsprint arising from the lorry driver's strike and is, of course, entirely beyond our control. Just so that our readers and advertisers know exactly what's going on. And at the time, Britain was much, much, much more unionised yeah. than it is now. More than 50% of all people were in trade unions and, of course, unions were a much bigger part of national life. But we forget that over 50% of public sector workers, they're just a fifth of the workforce, they are still in trade unions. And their leaders became increasingly militant in many cases during lockdown, not least the health unions, but a lot of the transport unions as well. And I do wonder how Labour's going to play this. And I think the person to watch here isn't Keir Starmer or Rachel Reeves, they're both trying to be very sure-footed politicians, not trying to mess things up. They are repeating the nostrums that they need to get round the negotiating table and, you know, the nurses don't strike under Labour, only under the Tories. And they're basically saying, we believe in the right of working people to withdraw their Labour. And of course, almost everyone believes in the right of working people to withdraw their Labour. It's all about when they do it, how they do it, for how long, and all the rest of it. But the Labour figure to watch here is Wes Streeting. Now, Planet Normal listeners may not know who Wes Streeting is. He's the Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. He's an extremely shrewd guy, a young man, and he has been putting himself out there, not least in the newspapers, including The Telegraph, saying, you know, I'm not 
the nurses and the doctor's champion. I'm the patient's champion. And as a patient myself, I'm getting terrible service. He's not just having a go at the NHS willy-nilly. He's laying out his own experiences, his family's experiences of the NHS and saying things that we've been saying on Planet Normal. Like, it isn't just all about the money. They've had a lot more money. How about getting more bang for our buck here? And then on cue, well, you have Progressive Britain in the form of Wes Streeting, the right on young health secretary. We then get the Institute for Fiscal Studies weighing in, no friend of the Tory party, and they've come up with a really interesting report saying that the NHS has had more funding and more staff than it did have pre-pandemic, and yet it's coming up with far fewer treatments for patients at a time when the NHS is clearly struggling for winter. One of the authors of the report even had the temerity to say on Twitter that there's a lot more sick leave within the NHS since the pandemic. So it's not as if this is a religion to the extent that it was. And Wes Streeting literally said that it's a service and not a shrine. And I would say that is a big sort of moment in politics when you've got somebody on the Labour front bench, the kind of young pretender, challenging Starmer and Rachel Reeves to get with respect a bit more lead in their pencil when it comes to pushing back against the vested interests. The only Labour frontbencher at the moment who's really sounding like Tony Blair is Wes Streeting. Yes, I noticed that. I thought it was very interesting and the fact he'd chosen, hadn't he, to give an interview to the Sunday Telegraph and I too, like you, Liam. By the way, can I just thank you on behalf of Planet Normal listeners for being a fount of such extraordinary political trivia. <laughs> what, that that Sun headline was named after a Supertramp album? That's good. That's quality. My first boyfriend had that Supertramp album. I know. That's why I get, I get a pay rise. Oh, sorry, I didn't get one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did think it's interesting, isn't it? And we've said before on Planet Normal, maybe Labour claims to have founded the health service, maybe the only people who will dare to touch it to reform it will be a Labour government. I mean, I despair of the Conservatives' attitude. They just seem to fingers in their ears and hope for the best with the state of it. As we know every week from emails and so on, it's absolutely diabolical what's going on in the NHS at the moment. We don't have a health service fit for a civilised country. I say that with great regret, but I'm afraid it's just increasingly true. And that is what OECD studies show, which you cited in your column Mm. this week. We'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. That is what the healthcare study by Tim Knox showed, a former guest on Planet Normal for the think tank Civitas. He got hold of a bunch of international comparisons of healthcare systems across the OECD, the advanced industrialised countries, and showed that while the UK in terms of funding was middle of the pack, not underfunded, in terms of health outcomes, it was second from bottom. The only country that was worse was the United States of America. So you've got all these countries across Western Europe and elsewhere who are providing free at the point of use healthcare. It's not just us that do free at the point of use healthcare. We keep pretending that it is. Almost yeah. every major Western economy, certainly in Europe, does free at the point of use healthcare, but they don't have a monolithic organization employing 1.3 million people, which is clearly for all the good work that goes on in it, for all the dedication of a lot of the staff, not all of them, a lot of the staff, it's deeply inefficient, chronically so. We mentioned last week briefly that Isabel Oakeshott had co-authored with Matt Hancock his Pandemic Diaries, which I'm ploughing through with gritted teeth. But <laughs> Why do you do it to yourself? <laughs> it's either watching Harry Kane 
take penalties <laughs> off Matt, Matt Hancock. It's just, oh, well, you know, I was probably being tortured in a previous life. But Isabel Oakeshott said, as the NHS morphed into a COVID service, there seems to have been remarkably little discussion at the top of government about the risk of compromising standards of care for people with any other serious illnesses. And Hancock, she says, admits that the NHS misled patients about this sorry state of affairs by declaring everything was fine. I do think, Liam, that the drip, drip, drip of terrible stories about people, you know, being denied ambulances and dying and so on, I do think as that turns into a torrent over the winter, I've seen the NHS alluded to on social media as the NHS no hope service. And once it becomes a sort of joke, once it becomes a dark national sort of source of humour, I think things are changing. So with the uh, economics KP on... What's KP? K-E-P-I. So people are facing rising energy, food bills, mortgages. Why should they agree to a cut in real wages? I think that's a big question. But in the end, if wages always outstrip inflation, inflation never ends. You just get an upward spiral. That's the point. The way historically that you bring inflation down is that you know people have to be paid less to squeeze the costs out of the supply chains. It's all about how that pain is distributed. And it seems that the public sector unions are determined that the pain is going to be pushed almost entirely onto the four-fifths of us who work in the private sector. Those of us in the private sector who, on average, are paid less than in the public sector. How many times have I heard on the media over the last few days, oh, there's a huge gap between public and private sector wages. Look, private sector wages are going up much more, right? Yes, private sector wages have been going up more than public sector wages over the last 10 years. But public sector wages are still, on average, about 10% higher. It's the difference between a level and a rate of change. The level is what really matters. The level is the amount of money you get that you can then spend. Public sector wages are still higher on average than private sector wages. And on top of that, public sector workers often have much better conditions in terms of sick leave, paternity and maternity leave, other benefits. And of course, they often have extremely valuable pension contributions made by the state too, worth up to a quarter or even more in some cases of their salary on top of the headline figure. It's all about how you distribute the pain. And this is what's happening. Workers that are in trade unions seem to be better able to insulate themselves from the pain, albeit at the cost of misery for the rest of us. And it strikes me that as and when this winter of discontent finally ends, I do think at the end of it, trade union membership will be much higher than it was when we went into it. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington, and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. 
Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Well, Liam, I've got a very good interviewee for everyone this week. I'm sure you're all going to love this. Returning to Planet Normal is Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University and an expert in public health. Jay was one of the three co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for focused protection of people who are vulnerable to COVID instead of locking down the entire population. Jay joined Twitter in the summer of 2021. In his very first tweet, he linked to a recent article he'd written for the Daily Telegraph that discussed age-based mortality risks from COVID and natural immunity. Last week, Twitter released a set of internal emails and documents from before Elon Musk's takeover of the company in October. One of the astonishing revelations was that Professor Jay Bhattacharya had been shadow banned, meaning his tweets would never make it to the trending topics on Twitter's front page. Elon Musk invited Jay to a meeting this past weekend to discuss the way the social media giant had used censorship to support the official COVID narrative. I began by asking Jay, how did he feel when he first found out that he'd been censored by Twitter? It was shocking in one sense. We basically live in uh, liberal democratic countries. We expect as a birthright almost to be able to speak freely without this kind of oppression, right? So in that sense, it felt shocking. On the other hand, I mean, it's not as if we didn't all experience it or suspect it or that something like this was happening. And I'll say, I don't even think just Twitter on its own decided to blacklist me. There was a concerted government campaign to silence voices skeptical of lockdowns, of mandates, of basically COVID-era policies that violated civil rights. And this was one more civil right that I think the rights were violated. I'll tell you how I think I know that. I mean, that we've, I've been part of this lawsuit that the Missouri and, and Louisiana Attorney General's offices have against the Biden administration. We have emails that from a dozen or more federal agencies that basically send to uh, social media companies saying, you know, what to censor, in some cases, who to censor. There was a concerted campaign to suppress the COVID debate. We are just, I think, a need to have a conversation. Do we actually have free speech rights anymore? Can you explain for listeners what you think actually was happening to your tweets? Sure. So uh, they put me on something called a trends blacklist. Uh, the way that Twitter works, your tweets, if you tweet something, if you, there, there's a thing called followers and following, like the people that follow me, they probably would see my tweets. What was not possible, though, on a trends blacklist is for the tweet to go on the trends list, which would then attract the attention of the vast number of other people on Twitter who didn't know about me or weren't following me at all. It basically made it so that I was speaking to my followers and my followers alone, as opposed to the broader audience. You think that Twitter put you on the blacklist on the first day you joined in August 2021. Was that linked to the Great Barrington Declaration? I believe so. Elon Musk invited me to go to Twitter headquarters. It was, it was a kind of surreal experience. Thinking I, As I drove up, I thought to myself, this trip has cost, cost somebody $44 billion. <laughs> Cheap at half the price, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, how much does free speech cost, right? So I got to talk with a Twitter engineer who helped me try to understand when I was put on this blacklist. It does appear that the blacklist was placed on the first day I joined Twitter. And the first, maybe the second tweet I did was a tweet linking to the Great Barrington Declaration, which is, as you know, Alison, as your listeners know, was a, a strategy uh, that aimed for focused protection of vulnerable people rather than lockdown to protect us against COVID. The interesting thing about that, the trans blacklist, according to the Twitter engineer that I was working with, was that it was a result of multiple complaints about my tweets on that day. You know, there was only basically two tweets that day, if I remember right. Yeah, so I think that what happened was that Twitter was reacting to outside forces to censor me, to put me on this blacklist. And those outside forces included government actors, including the government of the United States. Now, you did spend the afternoon at Twitter headquarters, slightly surreal meeting, as you said, at the invitation of Elon Musk. What were sort of the exchanges you had with Elon Musk and what do you think is the attitude that he's taking to the censorship? He gave me almost an hour of his time. It was, it was incredibly generous uh, for someone so busy. And, and uh, the, the main thing is that uh, the regime of, of censorship that it, 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 uh, is it, it's it's in this background of what looked to me like chaos before Elon took over. Uh, the other thing that we talked about is is Elon's thoughts about pandemic management. And it turns out that you know he was very uncomfortable with lockdowns. I mean, I knew this from before because he moved his Tesla plant from. California to Texas during the pandemic. So he must not have been very comfortable uh, with lockdowns. He is genuinely motivated by his disgust at this, at the, at Twitter being an instrument of suppression of, of the free exchange of ideas rather than an instrument of free speech. I think he spent that $44 billion because he genuinely wants to restore free speech to our democracies. Did he say sorry to you on behalf of Twitter? No, but inviting me was itself was an apology, I think. It was, uh, it was a remarkable moment for me. I, he doesn't need to say sorry. He's, he's fixing things. I don't blame him at all. How did you find him? I mean, very, very open to your ideas. I did. I found him, Look, you know, maybe listeners won't be surprised, an absolutely remarkable man. I had to wait for a little while to see him. I saw him huddled with engineers fixing some fire or other, whatever was happening at, uh, at Twitter at the time. What the engineers at Takwa told me is that he's there, you know, till 2, 3 a.m. every night huddling with engineers trying to fix what was broken in, in the company that he bought. Just to be clear, Jade, so you think that there was pressure from the government trying to suppress any different ideas about the response to COVID? Yes. So the reason I think that is that the American government has said that. It's not like I'm making up conspiracy. Just the, from the White House podium, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that they were working with social media companies to suppress the spread of misinformation. What that actually looks like is the White House meeting with social media executives regularly with lists of topics, lists of people even, to suppress. It, the White House effectively has admitted that. Effectively, actually has admitted that. And we have, uh, in this lawsuit I mentioned, emails from a dozen American federal agencies where they have regular meetings with officials at Twitter, at Facebook, uh, other uh, big tech companies about what to suppress. I mean, it was a direct violation of American free speech rights, and I think free speech rights for people around the world. The effect of it essentially was to, to squash the public 
view of the debate that was going on among scientists about COVID policy, about COVID science, and much else in the guise of protecting the public from misinformation. Previously, prior to this Twitter stuff, there was evidence that Ewan Martin and Shanetra, the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, were being smeared. So emails from October 2020 revealed between the scientist Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, head of America's National Institute of Health. And Collins called the Great Barrington Declaration the work of three fringe epidemiologists. We all know those those well-known fringe organizations, Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford, uh, that seems to be getting a lot of attention. And Collins said, there needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of Great Barrington's premises. I don't see anything like that online yet is underway. So we had these Two sainted public health officials, they certainly had their halos polished during lockdown, appear to have shut down scientific debate. Was that was that devastating to you? I mean, you know, th- th- there's a surreal air about talking about this, isn't there? I mean, it's one of those things where, like, it, you, you, you can't process it while it's happening. And even after it's happening, you can't believe it happened. I mean, these people, they're they're top of these like massive bureaucracies of federal, you know, federal funding of scientists. Their obligation is to listen to scientists, not to suppress, not to do devastating takedowns. And the form of it took uh, essentially smear pieces in the press, mischaracterizing what we were calling for, the straw men to try to make us look like monsters as opposed to for people who are trying to like protect the population from a deadly disease. The constant charge was you want to let the virus rip. Great Barrington was about, you know, let's plow on with the heartless pursuit of herd immunity. But isn't the fact, Jay, that it was basically stating long-established principles of epidemiology and pandemic management? It's the strategy that we used for a century of respiratory virus pandemics, and it's a strategy that worked as recently as 2009. I mean, I, I think... The, the the idea that the Great Barrington Declaration was this irresponsible irresponsible plan aimed at killing people was exactly the opposite of the truth. It called for focused protection of vulnerable people. You know, during the pandemic, many countries, we sent COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes. Why did we do that? Because the principle of focused protection of vulnerable people, which is old, the older people in this pandemic, really, is the main main group, that wasn't the principle we used to manage the pandemic. We killed people because we didn't do focus protection. And these top scientists at the federal agencies were saying, look, at uh, this is an irresponsible thing to do. It's quite the opposite. We closed schools for children. And as a result, a generation of kids, especially poor kids, will suffer because we didn't do focus protection. Actually, even in the UK, if you read Jeremy Farrar's book, the head of the Wellcome Trust, he admits he worked with Dominic Cummings to essentially organize a propaganda campaign primarily against Sunetra Gupta, but, but, but also against the other authors of the Great Britain Declaration. So it does feel like there is a major backlash underway. Elon Musk tweeted, my pronouns are prosecute and Fauci. That was pretty incendiary stuff. Uh, the White House has attacked Musk for his dangerous and disgusting tweet about Dr. Fauci. And meanwhile, we have Florida. You're speaking to us today from Florida. The governor, Ron DeSantis, has weighed in behind you. He tweeted, 
Twitter's blacklisting of Dr. Bhattacharya is proof that big tech and the medical establishment targeted scientific dissenters to control the narrative around COVID-19. This is pretty exciting, is it, Jay, do you think? I mean, I think the battle lines and sense are drawn. They've been drawn for a while. It's just they're now out in the open. It's going to be very difficult to justify further censorship. Uh, We now know what happened to Twitter. And of course, it's not going to happen in the future because Elon Musk has said that, look, Twitter can be a free speech platform once again. So we have now a more honest debate uh, in front of us. The other big tech companies, which are still, I think, participating in this censorship regime, there should be pressure on them to come clean. They're still, I think, suppressing Google, YouTube, LinkedIn, Microsoft. I have to tell you, it makes me really uncomfortable because I'm not political. I'm not a political figure. I am a professor of the medical school at Stanford. I do research for a living primarily. It's it, uh, it pains me to see a political divide on something that ought to be a, simply a scientific and a science policy topic. So the latest news is that Ron DeSantis has petitioned Florida Supreme Court for statewide grand jury on COVID-19 vaccines, and he has announced the creation of a public health integrity committee. Are you going to be involved in that, Jay? So I'm going to be involved in the Public Health Integrity Committee. I'm calling it the shadow CDC. I mean, the American Centers for Disease Control has performed absolutely miserably during the pandemic. They have failed to do key studies to inform the public health policy uh, at crucial times, where they have instead published incredibly low-quality studies designed, it's apparently designed to like buttress the adoption of policies that made no, made no sense. Mask mandates, for instance, incredibly low quality studies published, whereas you have other health agencies around the world uh, actually doing amazing studies on, you know, vaccine efficacy in the, re- in the real world, side effect profiles of vaccines, the, uh, the efficacy of masks. You know, it's it's a lot of these key questions should have been answered by the American CDC. Previously, it was seen as one of the best public health agencies in the world. And now I think, you know, the American public looks at the American CDC and says, look, this, we don't trust it. How do you see this public health integrity committee operating? We have several amazing scientists that are participating, including Christine Stable-Ben of Denmark, we have Martin Kuldorf of Harvard. So we have a fantastic group of scientists who've signed on to help us essentially respond with analysis of CDC policy pronouncements, policy guidance, and CDC studies. That, so that way people can ha- say see that there's, there is an alternate voice when the CDC makes pronouncements that don't make any sense. We had last week, actually, our two lead guys in the COVID response, Sir Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance, Chief Medical Officer and Chief Scientific Officer, and they've written a report on the handling of the pandemic. And they admitted that there were going to be many, many excess deaths. They attributed this to people being too altruistic to go to hospital. But they also came up with this extraordinary conclusion, which is that in future pandemics, don't count on the vaccines being available so swiftly. So we might need even longer lockdowns. To me, it was like two arsonists giving a commentary on the burning building, Jay. I mean, does it bother you that the lessons have not been learned? Well, I think you can't expect Witty and Balance to do an objective evaluation of their own performance. 
they failed to manage the pandemic in a in a reasonable way. We're going to have a, a conversation. It's going to happen. It's damaged the lives of too many people. And the ultimate evaluation is not going to be done by the people that, that decided this. They can't just pat themselves on the back, give themselves awards, and move on. Uh, too many people have been hurt. I don't expect an apology from them. There's too much at stake. Their entire reputations are, are at stake in whether they made good choices during the pandemic. And, and, and I, I don't think and any objective evaluation lead anyone to say that they made good choices that were successful. A tremendous number of people have died of COVID. The collateral harms from the lockdown are just, it's, it's too great to look at almost. But we have to look at it and we have to put plans and we have to make our plans in light of this failure so that when another pandemic happens, we never do this again. The strategy of lockdown until vaccines are available is a crazy strategy. We don't even know that the vaccines would work in the next pandemic. We didn't know in this pandemic. It turns out they didn't work as well as we expected them to work. You know, the disease spread during the lockdowns. Our societies are not designed for lockdowns. They're, they're, they're unequal. Only a certain class of people, the laptop class, can afford or, or even thrive during a lockdown. The most, most of the rest of the people are harmed by them, especially the most vulnerable people in our societies. Poor people, working class people, children are harmed by the lockdowns in ways that are unrecoverable. To say that we're going to lock down until the vaccine, which may take longer next time, is a strategy that is designed to destroy the lives of poor, vulnerable people and is incompatible with liberal democracy. Jay, I feel that you, Shanetra, Martin, Liam, myself, all the listeners of great listeners of Planet Normal, we've been we've been on this extraordinary journey, I guess, without maps or without lights. I feel chemically changed by what happened to my society. It's really depressed me. My trust in authority is very, very badly dented, I have to say. Do you feel you are changed? Do you, do you think you can be the same Jay Bhattacharya you were before? My trust in institutions is is at a place where I never thought in my life there would be. I mean, I have been part of the, of the academy. I've been part of the medical establishment. I've been part of public health for my entire career. My own trust in all three are at an all-time low. I, I don't know if it's recoverable. I mean, I'm going to try to work to repair all three, but I can understand why someone sitting outside those institutions would never trust us again. We have to work to earn the trust of, of, of the people who, who support us. Honestly, how, how many people honestly trust even medicine? It's crazy. It basically, the, the, the institutions that, that were, I mean, unimpeachable before the pandemic you know, do you trust your doctor? Do you trust the NHS? I mean, these kinds of like institutions, there's been widespread collapse in the most basic institutions of our society, or the trust in the basic institutions of our society. And uh, I think we have to work to fix it, but I don't know how. Is it true you have a business card with fringe epidemiologist on it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually is true. So a friend of mine made made one out. I, I love it. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use it. Maybe, maybe someone can put it on my epitaph when I die. <laughs> Well, I just want to say, Jade, you restore our faith. You really, you really do. And I hope you'll come back and keep us posted with everything that's going on with the, the new Public Health Integrity Committee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alison. Pleasure as always to talk. I think Jay Bhattacharya, Alison, who has a PhD in economics, as well as being a professor of medicine at Stanford. As you do quite astonishing. <laughs> I think he 
really symbolizes and personifies what university tenure was designed for. Because there he is, he has his perch in one of the world's leading universities and he is rightly saying what he wants. And he's saying what he wants based on his research and his integrity. And it's disgraceful how he and Shinetra Gupta and Martin Kordov were treated, not just by Twitter under its previous ownership, by the media in general, I would say, and by governments across the Western world. And good for him that he has been so forthright. And I think he emerges from this. He's one of the few people at the top of our transatlantic establishment, if you like, that emerges from this horrible episode, which has changed me chemically too. I think you expressed it well. He's one of the very, very few people, authority figures, who emerge from this enhanced as a result of the tragic mistakes of lockdown. He speaks so reasonably, doesn't he, Liam? He's got such a mellifluous way of expressing himself. But some of the things he's saying are quite shattering, I think. You know, he did have this meeting with Elon Musk and found out that Elon Musk has, I love the fact he said that Elon Musk has had to spend $40 billion in a bid to restore free speech to America. But that's a joke and it's not a joke, really. And he talks about Musk being genuinely disgusted by the behaviour of Twitter in suppressing debate. And Jay's quite right to say that other social media platforms need to follow suit Again, referring back to the Isabel Oakeshott article in The Spectator that Matt Hancock, during uh, lockdown, was in touch with Nick Clegg, former Lib Dem politician, at Facebook. I'm going to be honest, co-pilot, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we discover that we were on a media blacklist. I bet we were. But looking forward, this connection with Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis has spoken out powerfully in favour of Jay Bhattacharya, Florida now setting up this public health integrity committee. It's basically like setting up a shadow CDC. So basically, Florida is setting up a committee, a health committee, which will challenge Washington. It's going to hold Washington health policy to account. And Ron DeSantis is a really strong candidate to be the next president of the United States. So imagine that. It's quite extraordinary. I think what's vital here, Alison, and we've said this before on Planet Normal, if it hadn't have been for war in Ukraine, your cost of living crisis, now massive industrial action across the Western world and beyond, we would be focused on this public inquiry into COVID lockdown. It's almost as if it's an afterthought at the moment, but it is vital. And what's most important about it is we get from it a kind of roadmap of what we do the next time. And it strikes me it's really important that on that roadmap, the Great Barrington Declaration, which was systematically vilified by a lot of the world's press, particularly the Western world, despite its stellar origins, three of the world's top epidemiologists all of whom are well known to you and I, all of whom we have talked to over many months and years now. It's vital that they have their say and they are seen to be legitimate in putting forward their point of view. And the shocking revelation that our government, we think, and certainly the US government, basically worked with the social media giants to suppress our debate. Hopefully, that means that those who were suppressed have a disproportionately large voice as we decide how to handle the next pandemic.
Now it's time for our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love to read them. We've got a really cheerful one, Halligan, to start off. Very unusually amidst the mounting chaos. Hi, Alison and Liam. This is from Deborah. I emailed you a few weeks ago about the problem I was having getting a second knee replacement after paying for the first one. I had to make a statement that I had tried conservative treatment first, despite three orthopaedic consultants confirming that that my knee was bone on bone. Ouch. I did, as you suggested, Alison, and emailed a statement explaining in the strongest possible terms that I did qualify for NHS funding and I had the clinical opinions to prove it. I'm happy to say I have just received a call from my preferred hospital to book me in for surgery on the 7th of January. Hooray, Deborah. Thank you for your help. At least it's some good news amidst all the gloom that is our country at the moment. I've given Planet Normal a great review on Spotify. It really is a must-listen podcast. I'd never listened to one before. Me neither, Deborah. I clicked on the link on the Daily Telegraph online newspaper. Well, I never. Absolutely extraordinary. (laughs) She sounds like you about two and a half years ago. (laughs) Sounds like me now. I can't be on a podcast. I don't know what they are. I clicked on a link in the Daily Telegraph (laughs) online newspaper. You know me, I stopped about 1969. But just to say, just to say to everybody that I've become a bit of an orthopaedic agitator. They'll try and palm you off and say, oh, you must manage your missing leg (laughs) for as long as you can in the community. But you are fully entitled to ring up and complain. And if you like, you can say that Alison Pearson will be writing about you in her Daily Telegraph column (laughs) if you don't give me a new knee. Works a treat, (laughs) co-pilot. This is from Robert. The current rather overwrought reaction in the UK media to what is just normal winter cold reminds me of surviving the winter of 1962-63 in Cardiff. After a blizzard on Boxing Day, the temperatures plummeted to well below freezing and stayed very cold for almost three whole months, writes Robert. It was so cold that the radiators of buses were freezing up, even during use. The vast majority of us in the UK at that time lived in homes with no loft insulation, no central heating and leaky single paned windows. The main source of heating was an open coal fire or perhaps two if you were lucky and had enough coal or a very inefficient portable electric fire. The coal fire had a back boiler which provided hot water. So when the fire was out, that was not the time for a bath. Most cars didn't have heaters and buses in Cardiff, with just very few exceptions, had no heaters in the passenger compartments either. And an open platform at the rear, of course. I was on the buses to earn some money before going to university. And with gales of freezing air blowing around me, that rear platform was very, very cold. Hold tight. Ding, ding. The letters columns (laughs) of the newspapers in those months were full of advice on how to keep warm, such as layering thick brown paper between your bed blankets. (laughs) Perhaps this should be part of today's official advice from the NHS. People complained of feeling cold, but mostly we just got on with it. And if you tell that to the young people of today, writes Robert, (laughs) and he signs himself off, Orbidaya, in reference, of course, to the fantastic Monty Python for Yorkshireman sketch. Brilliant. And Edward says the obviously catastrophic repercussions of lockdown need to be shouted from the rooftops and we need to try and learn the lessons. As for the NHS, this was desperately broken even before the COVID. Either you can afford private medicine now or you go without. That will be the case until a government, presumably Labour, God help us, is forced to reform it. 
My colleague reports that they took an 18-month-old child to A&E with strep A at dinner time. They were seen at 4am and sent away with the child as there are no antibiotics to be dispensed. This is from James finally. Dear Alison and Liam, thank you for another excellent podcast. Listening to last week's letter regarding the cost of housing and the need in most cases for two full-time earners in a household to service the debts, I sympathise as I'm in the same boat. We often forget that Gordon Brown relaxed lending criteria in the early 2000s from three and a half times the main breadwinner's income plus one times the second applicant to up to five times the total income of both applicants. This was presumably done for reasons of, quotes fairness, but in the face of a fixed housing supply simply caused price rises to the point families are now living in the same sized or smaller homes than their 1990s equivalents, but they need two rather than one full-time earners to pay for it, at massive detriment to family life. For comparison, in 2001, I bought a fairly substantial three-bedroom terrace in Portsmouth as a junior naval officer for the princely sum of £92,000 on a salary of £28,000. Today, the same house would cost £270,000 and the equivalent salary is £35,000. So that's a change from three times earnings to seven times. One way to bring house prices under control would be to slowly reduce the limits on second applicant borrowing, says James. Best wishes and keep up the good work. And on that housing bombshell, Alison, James is completely right. Mm. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave the Sanctuary of Sweet Reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn, Alison. And I think we've got to have a Planet Normal mug for your successful leg customer. I was going to say we had to have a Planet Normal mug for Robert freezing his knackers off on the back of the bus in Cardiff. Cardiff. Just because he's Welsh. (laughs) Okay, both of you, if you can email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with mug winner in the subject heading of your email, those rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mugs will wing their way towards you. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitz, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week, which will be our Christmas Planet Normal special. It's goodbye from me. And happy winter closure period to all our (laughs) listeners. (laughs) 